Let's pray. Father, thank you for this part of your word. Thank you for what it shows us about Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to receive it this morning, not as a bit of history, but as truth, present and real and potent and so much more meaningful for each one of us than we might even be able to imagine. Show us Christ this morning, O Lord, I pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Strengthen each one of us in our inner beings to be able to see the glory of Jesus revealed in this part of your word. And I pray this, Jesus, in your name and for your glory. Amen. You can have a seat. In the past number of years, I've had to go to a fair number of doctors. And one of the things I've learned is how important specialists are. Uh, Going to a general practitioner is a good first step. It's helpful to begin there. But if you really want some specific issues looked at, you're going to need to go to a specialist. And I'm grateful to live in a country where we have so many specialists, doctors who have, have, have studied a very, very specific part of the human body or some very specific system, and they can give help and advice for that very specific part of your body. At the same time, that specialist may not be a lot of help for something else that might be wrong with you. It's interesting, in the ancient world, many cultures, uh, the, the Greeks and the Romans among them, had a similar idea about their gods. There may have been a chief god, but beneath him were all kinds of, of what we could call specialist gods. There was a god of war, a god or goddess of love, a goddess of fertility, a god of the harvest, god of thunder, etc., etc. And which god you prayed to or sacrificed to depended on, on what you wanted done for you. If you wanted help in battle, you might go to this God, but don't bother asking him for help with your harvest. You had to find the right specialist God to talk to about that issue. And and in all of this, what set Israel apart from all all of the other countries and all of the other people was that they believed in one God who had power over every area. And that's actually what's really astounding about some of those promises God made to Moses, that if you, fall, if you believe in me, if you, if you follow me, then you will be blessed here and here and here and here and here. Those are all like specialized areas that other religions needed a whole troop of gods to take care of that. But following the Lord, he was, you realize that he was the one who had power and authority over absolutely every area of life. And so you only needed to talk to one person. When Jesus came to earth, one of the ways that he revealed his identity as the Son of God was by showing his authority. And what we've seen so far in Matthew is Jesus' authority in two main ways. His authority in teaching and his authority in, in healing. And we've seen the amazing authority that Jesus has in these two areas. But if that's where it stopped... Do you wonder if some people could get the idea that Jesus was a specialist? He was, he was really good at teaching authoritatively, and he could heal people. So if, if you needed to hear some truth, and if you needed to be healed, Jesus would be the person you'd go to. 
But if you had another problem, you need to find someone else to fix it for you. And today's passage just blows that up. Because what we see here today, this is the second of, of a trilogy of miracles in Matthew's chapter 8 to 9. There's three sets of three miracles. This is the second set. And what we see here is Jesus exercising his authority in ways that, that we haven't seen, or at least haven't seen so clearly in Matthew up until this point. You see the authority of Jesus over nature, over the powers of darkness, and over sin itself. And this continues to add to our understanding of who Jesus is as the son of the one true God who has authority in absolutely every possible area and sphere that we might be able to think of. So let's begin by looking at Christ's authority over nature. And this is beginning in verse 23. And if we start in verse 23, which picks up right where we left off last week, we can see that this continues to, uh, to, from the narrative of last week. And it shows us that this is a discipleship story. Verse 23 says, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So remember last week, he had people coming, oh, I want to follow you wherever you go. Uh, just let me go bury my father first. And, and Jesus had to help them see what was really going on here. And then verse 23, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Disciples of Jesus follow Jesus wherever he goes. This story also helps us see, just by the way, that discipleship can be hard. The disciples of Jesus followed him, and what did they follow him into? A life-threatening storm. So discipleship with Jesus is not like a children's show. It's, it can be really difficult. And yet, we're there with Jesus. And a disciple of Jesus would rather be with Jesus in a storm than apart from Jesus at home in their own bed. Let's not get a hold of ourselves, though. Ahead, sorry, ahead of ourselves. Verse 24, where we read these words again, and behold. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. A great storm. The, the Sea of Galilee has some very interesting geography. It's well below sea level, and it's surrounded by these high uh, hills, and so you get this really weird mix of cold and hot air that can cause for these crazy storms that just come out of nowhere. And that's what happened here. Behold, there was a great, there arose a great storm, so that here's how big it was: the boat was being swamped by the waves. So this is a big enough storm that this boat that's built for going across the Sea of Galilee is 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 getting filled up with waves, huge waves. <coughs> And look at what Jesus is doing. The end of verse 24. But he was asleep. Now we're going to see here in a moment that the disciples were really, uh, well, I think in the outline I have that they were panicking in a great storm. Uh, They were freaking out. And what we need to remember is that at least four of the disciples were professional fishermen. Okay, so you've probably hung out with professionals in an area and something happens and they're like, oh no, it's no big deal. You know, like first time you ever get in a boat, you're like, is this going to sink? And then someone who's been in a boat a lot is like, no, this is fine. But when you see a guy who earns his living from being in a boat, when you see him freaked out, you're, you're in trouble. And so the disciples are, are really uh, very uneasy, to, to put it mildly, about what's going on here. They're freaking out. So this is a big storm and Jesus is sleeping right through it. This is quite a picture of the humanity of Jesus. Fully God, but fully man. He he had been ministering, giving out to people all day. He's exhausted. Some of you know it's like to be so tired that you just like get in the door and you just feel like you could sleep right there on your front mat. 
Well, Jesus falls asleep in a boat. A boat that is going up, down, up, down, up, down, side to side and filling up with water. He's just soundly sleeping. So the disciples, we can imagine they're panicking right now and they wake Jesus up and verse 25, they say to him, save us, Lord, we're perishing. There's some really interesting Old Testament background to this scene. There's numbers of times, particularly in the Psalms, where the psalmist is in a crisis and it feels like God is asleep. And so he prays to God and says, wake up and save me. Psalm 35, 22 to 23. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my Lord and God. And similar language is used in a few other places. The, the, the Psalms show us that there, there are times in life and perhaps many times where we get into trouble and it feels like God is sleeping. And in the Psalms, the psalmist has no problem telling God that with, with respect and fear, but he uses that language. Here for the disciples, they were having that experience, but in, in a much more real way because Jesus actually literally was sleeping. Literally, he was out cold. And they cry out to him as the only one that can save them. Do you notice what's interesting here? Do you notice the disciples don't get on their knees and pray to the Father in heaven? They go to Jesus. They know he can do something. Even though, as we're about to see, they weren't really prepared for the display of power that they saw. Because very quickly, the disciples go from panicking in a great storm to marveling in a great calm. And it's very interesting. This passage is basically told in two halves. And it's like at this moment that Jesus awakes, the whole story now gets told in reverse. Jesus awakes, and everything in this story starts to get reversed. So at the end of verse 25, the disciples said to Jesus, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. Well, the counterpoint to that, the beginning of verse 26, before it even tells us that Jesus got up. So it's like that the picture Matthew wants us to see is his eyes open, and the first thing out of his mouth is not... Oh, I'm so sorry I fell asleep on you guys. That's not what he says. What's he say? Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. In the original language, like, oh, you little faiths. Why are you afraid? Uh, I can think of some good reasons why I'd be afraid. Like, we're about to die in the middle of a lake with no life jackets. I think that's a good reason to be afraid, but not according to Jesus. They don't have life jackets. They didn't even know they existed, but they've got Jesus. He's there. And so according to Jesus, don't miss this, according to Jesus, they have no good reason to be afraid. No good reason to be afraid. Yeah, there's a storm, but you've you've got Jesus there. No good reason to be afraid. Why would you think this storm would be a big deal for Jesus? Didn't Jesus say we're gonna cross the lake? He said we're gonna cross the lake. What's changed? Quite a rebuke. I, I, I find often it is, in my own life, it's easy for me to excuse the way that I freak out when circumstances start to go wild, when crisis comes. I sort, we sort of excuse, oh, I, I was kind of freaking out. I was, you know, I sort of lost my faith for a little bit. I've had, those, I've had these moments where it's felt like God's sleeping and everything is going crazy. And the question from Jesus why are you afraid? Are you of little faith? 
So now remember how the story gets told in reverse. So Jesus speaks, and then we heard he was sleeping. So next what we see is that he arises. And then what does he do? He rebukes the wind and the waves. If you didn't know who Jesus was, this, this sounds like a, like a setup to a joke. Like, uh, imagine we're hanging out together, and a storm rolls in, and the clouds are coming, and one of us goes, hey, stay, stay. Like, we laugh. It's like some of you are chuckling right now, because that's ridiculous. Who looks at clouds and goes, you, don't you come any further? No, you stay. I said stay. I mean, people who talk to weather are crazy. <laughs> Unless you're Jesus. Unless you're Jesus. Because it says that Jesus rebukes the wind and the sea. Now, Matthew is so deliberate in the way he writes it. And we've got to see here that, that even this word rebuke is so important. Because this is a, there's, a, there's an Old Testament pattern here of God rebuking the wild waters. Listen to these, these words, Psalm 104, 6-7. to You covered it with the deep, that's the earth, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. It's talking about the flood. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. Psalm 106.9, this is talking about the Red Sea when Israel crossed. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry and he led them through the deep as with a desert. So two examples of patterns that we see in the Old Testament of God rebuking, and in, in, the, in the original language, the Greek Old Testament, Matthew, it's the same word. God rebuking the waters and the waters listen to him. They do what he says. And so they've seen this before. They've seen, they're not finding it strange that someone would rebuke the wind and the seas and the waters would listen to him. They've never seen someone in human form do this before, though. But that's exactly what Jesus did. Verse 26, Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. Do you see how the story's totally reversed now? Great storm, great calm. I mean, this is a miracle in more ways than one, because I forget who pointed this out to me. You turn the winds off, it's going to take a while for those waves to calm down. So the fact that it's a great calm means not only the wind stopped, but Jesus made the water go flat. Can you just imagine being there in that moment where it's like a crazy storm and Jesus says something and then it's like, I was trying to think of the closest thing that I've been in and maybe you've had it or, or experienced or seen this, you know, where like someone's listening to music really loud. Maybe as a teenager, you were that teenager or maybe you had teenagers to listen to music really loud and they're totally lost in, in just this like crazy loud music and the parent walks up to the amplifier and just goes click and it's just dead quiet. And they look, what just happened? Maybe a little bit of what this would have been like. Just crazy wild storm. They're being bucked around, hanging on for their life, drowning, swamping, and all of a sudden, Wow. Verse 27 says, the men marveled. No kidding. No, no kidding they marveled. They would have been completely astonished. Now, they asked Jesus to save them, but they, they weren't prepared for this show of his power. And in the rest of verse 27, we hear them asking a question. What sort of man is this? Like, they thought they knew who Jesus was. They didn't. 
what sort of man is this that even the winds in the sea obey him? Like, we've seen people obey him, and they'd seen sickness obey him, and to a certain extent, they'd seen demons obey him, which we're going to see in more detail here in a moment. But, like, the Sea of Galilee listens to him. It's like it's his. It's, it's his. And it listens to him. Who is this? Matthew wants us to ask that question. He doesn't answer right away in words. It's not until chapter 16 that the disciples of Jesus speak for the first time who he really is. But without pausing a whole lot more, verse 28 tells us what happens when they landed. So now we get to the second miracle where we see Christ's authority over demons or the forces of darkness. Verse 28, when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes. Okay, so it's important to understand they crossed Sea of Galilee and they're in a big Gentile region now. Uh, there's, a, there's a herd of pigs here. The Jews didn't keep pigs. The, 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 they didn't eat pigs. They saw them as an unclean animal. So they're in a Gentile region and very likely Jesus came here to be alone with his disciples to, to teach them and, and train them and equip them. And yet... Uh, Jesus here is is in a preview of the wider mission, right? Because at this point, Jesus' ministry was pretty focused on Israel. That was going to open up at the end when he says, make disciples of all nations. But in a preview of that, in a preview of that, we find Jesus engaging in ministry here in this Gentile region. Because halfway through verse 28, we read, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. Demon-possessed comes from an original word, or sorry, from a single word in the original language. We could put it like demoniac, demonized, might be another way of putting it in one word. And we've seen it twice in Matthew. Uh, Matthew 4.24 and 8.16, it says that Jesus has healed people who were demonized. And it could be translated oppressed by demons or possessed by demons. And the word points to someone who's completely under the, under, the, under the control and influence of a demon or of demons who are the fallen angels who are opposed to God and who are Satan's servants. Now, it's really interesting because demon possession has, has really captured the imagination of people here in the West over in recent decades Maybe ever since the movie The Exorcist, every few years there's another horror movie that comes out about, about demon possession. It's just, it's just a horrifying thought to us that you could see someone that looks like a person on the outside, but their, their whole personhood has been completely pushed out of the way, and their body is essentially just a shell for this ancient, wild, invisible spirit that's controlling them living inside their body like a house. It's an, it's an awful thought. It's interesting that here in, in the Western world, particularly, I, I should say, in, in European contexts here in the Western world and kind of white culture, we don't tend to see a lot of, of overt demon possession. I think that's on purpose, right? Because if you look at here in the, in the Western world that we live in, in the, particularly in white cultures, Satan doesn't want people to believe in him, right? Satan does a lot of his work here behind the scenes. He's still very much at work, but he doesn't want people to know that he's there. He, he's, a, he's a secret agent. And so if he were to 
uh, cause a lot of demon possessions to happen, if there was very, very overt, obvious demon possession happening, I think that would cause more people to believe in Satan, which would cause more people to believe in God. And so in our culture, we don't see a ton of this. I've heard from people that there's other cultures in the world where they still see very much this kind of thing happening regularly. It certainly happened a lot in Jesus' ministry. Some people say that just the very presence of Jesus provoked this angry response from the kingdom of darkness. So there's this huge uptick in possession. I'm not sure about that. Here's what we do know. Satan's real. He works in all kinds of ways. The study guide that each of you got in your bulletin, there's some passages in there to help you see the different ways in the Bible that we see Satan's work described. One of the ways that Satan works is through demon possession. This is a real thing. It's not just the realm of horror movies. It's a real thing. And on this day, Jesus is met by two men, possessed and controlled by a bunch of demons. And I just want you to think, I mean, I don't want to scare you too much, but I just want you to think how terrifying this would be. First of all, these guys live in the tombs. That's scary enough. They live in a graveyard. Uh, they, this would have been, this would have set them apart as terrifying already. And, and verse 28 tells us that they were so fierce that no one should pass, no one could pass that way. They were so violent and dangerous that they'd shut down this road. So think about it this way. Think about if, if here in Nippon we knew that there's two guys that lived in Maple Hill Cemetery and they were so scary that they'd shut down the Carrot River Highway. Okay? Like that's, that's how intense this is. No one goes that way. Don't go that way. Sorry about Maple Hill Restaurant. It's out of business because no one's going to go that way because these guys are so fierce and so terrifying. And yet that's where Jesus goes. Do you think he went there by accident? I don't think so. so have you ever seen a scene on a movie? I feel like I've seen a few and I, I can't think of exactly where it is, but where you've got something big and scary, like an animal or even a, a, a person who's big and scary, and they're threatening the main character and it, it seems like they're like the big bad guy. And all of a sudden, you like hear some footsteps or you hear a voice. And all of a sudden, that big, big scary guy all of a sudden looks scared. And he tucks his tail between his legs and he goes slinking off. And you realize, uh-oh, there's something even bigger coming. Something even more powerful coming. That's kind of what happens here. As these two guys come out of the tombs, and what comes out of their mouth? Not, get out of here, we're going to rip you limb to limb. No, what do they say? What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Do you see how the terrifying demoniacs are now the terrified demoniacs? They're scared of Jesus. That phrase, what do you have to do with us or what have you to do with us? It's a figure of speech that basically means like, we got nothing in common. Leave us alone. (laughs) Leave me alone. Leave us alone, Jesus. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Just put yourself in the disciples' shoes, okay? They'd never been here before as far as we know. They'd never seen these guys before. These, how, how would these guys have known who Jesus was, right? Think, they didn't have pictures. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have Facebook People didn't know what someone famous looked like. That's what, so that's why Judas needed to betray Jesus. Because no one actually, if, unless you'd been around him a lot, you wouldn't actually, you can have a picture of his face. So you needed a, someone to identify him, right? Otherwise, it just looks like a group of people. So these, these two men who had never, as far as we know, ever seen Jesus before, come out and they look right at him and they know exactly who he is. And they're terrified. 
It's interesting. You notice what they call Jesus? O Son of God. You know, in the last time that we've heard this phrase in Matthew, you know whose mouth it was on? Satan's. If you are the Son of God, that's the only other time in Matthew that we've seen these words. You see, see the irony here? That the forces of darkness know who Jesus is. His own disciples don't yet know who he is. But, but the forces of darkness know who Jesus is. It's not again till chapter 16 that Peter's going to say, you're the son of the living God. It's also interesting, we've got to notice this. Verse 27, his disciples, what sort of man is this? And the demon-possessed men, he's the son of God. <laughs> the, demon, the demoniacs know who he is. And they're afraid. They know Jesus is the judge who is going to judge Satan and his forces at the end of time. And they're not so sure that end of time is here. So why is Jesus here? Have you come to torment us? Jesus is the tormentor of demons. Do you know that about Jesus? And, and not tormentor in, in any way, speaking beyond just the fact that he's going to punish them for eternity, giving them exactly what they deserve. Verse 30. Now, interesting detail, a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. This is important. And the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, we're not going to listen. That's not what they say. They knew that if Jesus casts them out, there's nothing they can do to stop it from happening. They must obey him. So they're trying to negotiate and saying, "Uh, send us away to the herd of pigs. Now, this is really interesting. Why do they want to go into the pigs? Uh, do they just want to cause more mischief? Do they just not want to be homeless? There's some, there's some senses. Matthew 12, that demons like a home. Is that what's going on? Uh, we're not exactly sure, but don't miss what is important. They're begging Jesus. So he's in charge here. Jesus is in charge. Jesus hasn't even said anything yet. And he's in charge here. And they want to go into the pigs. Here's, here's, here's really the point of the pigs. We're not sure why they want to be there, but here's the point. Think of the visual, okay? You're one of the disciples. And you see these two wild men begging Jesus for something. And some distance off, just this peaceful scene of a bunch of animals. And what we see here in verse 32, the powerful Christ, Jesus finally speaks and he says one word, Go. And all of a sudden, I mean, think of the distance. All of a sudden, your disciples watching this. These two guys are just normal. Just like the sea that was calmed a few minutes ago. These guys are just totally normal. And all of a sudden, this entire herd of pigs, some number of pigs, freaks out. And they all run down the slope and drown, them, drown in the sea. So there is a pretty clear demonstration here of the power of Jesus. Because think of how many demons were in these guys. That they're enough to fill a whole herd of pigs. So... That, that, that's kind of the point here. We don't know why pigs, I don't know why pigs, except that it shows us just how many demons were there and that they didn't think, hey, there's enough of us here. We could gang up on Jesus. That thought, not even possible. And Jesus says one word, go, boom, situation completely changed and these crazy pigs run off and drown. Now again, we're not sure what's going on here. I thought the demons wanted a home. Did the demons make the pigs drown? Did, did the pigs choose death rather than being possessed by the demons? Did Jesus cause them to drown as a punishment? I'm not sure. Here's one irony, though. What, what happened to the pigs? 
They drowned. What were Jesus' disciples terrified of just a few moments ago? Drowning. But here's the idea. If you're with Jesus, you're safe in the middle of the sea. You're safe from drowning. If you're with Jesus' enemies, you're not safe from drowning, even though, if, even though you're on dry land. Okay? It's just a neat little connection here between these two stories. But the whole thing, the point, is to show us the number of these demons, therefore the power of Jesus, who they're begging for mercy. He hasn't even said, he speaks one word, the whole thing changes. Just like with the storm, Jesus speaks and things change right away. In your study guide, you're going to see some questions. How should we interact with demons? And, and I just want to tip my hand a little bit. I'm not sure that Christians should try to engage with demons in this direct command and control way that, that Jesus did any more than we should interact with the weather that way. We, the Bible tells us how we should engage with the powers of darkness, and there's a whole lot of material there in your study guide. But Jesus does this, just like with the storm, just like with sickness, now with the demons, just a word. Boom. And finally, the story ends in a very interesting place with the unwelcoming people, with the herdsmen fleeing, going to the city, telling everybody, and all the people came out to ask for Jesus' autograph. No, they asked him to leave. And so here's one of the themes in, in Matthew and in all the Gospels. A miracle can't change anyone's mind. You can show a miracle to someone. If they've got a hard heart, it's not going to do a thing. They want Jesus to go away. Is it because they didn't want any more property damage? They wanted pigs more than a savior? We're not sure. But once again, we see the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And so he goes back to Capernaum. And this brings us to our final of the three miracles. And here we see Christ's authority to forgive sins. Jesus is back in Capernaum, right? Verse 1 of chapter 9, getting back in the boat. He crossed over, came to his own city. Verse 2, behold, look, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Okay? So if you're paralyzed, you can't move. Uh, this is something that you can't fake. Okay? So there's all kinds of faith healers around the world today that, you know, if you've got a, a sore back, they can make it feel like your sore back gets better, but you, you can't fake healing a paralyzed person. And, and though they bring this paralyzed person to Jesus, in that day, they didn't have long-term disability or employment insurance. Paralyzed person would have lived his whole life at the mercy of other people taking care of him, feeding him. I mean, this, this, this guy's in serious need. What do you think that he's been thinking for years his, his real need is? He wants to be able to walk again. What do you think his friends picked him up that morning and brought him to Jesus? Maybe this powerful miracle worker can help him walk again. So he's got to think of how, how deeply ingrained this man in his, if I could only walk, if I could only walk. Those of you with health problems, like I talked about some of the health problems I've had. Trust me, I, I, I want to be totally better from them. So some of you with health problems, you know what it's like, oh, if this could just be taken away, think of how much stronger for this paralyzed man. And they bring him to Jesus, and when Jesus sees their faith, verse 2, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son. Wait for it. What does he say? Your sins are forgiven. Uh, did, you get the, like, did Jesus get the wrong order? That's not what they were there for. They were there to be healed from, to heal this guy from being paralyzed. But Jesus 
knows what's really going on here. And that's why this first point here is that Jesus understands the priority of forgiveness. Jesus understands that this man's biggest problem isn't that he can't walk. His biggest problem is that he's a sinner who's going to face the judgment of God for his sin. And he needs more than to be able to walk. He needs to be forgiven. Okay, big lessons here. Christians who are thinking about missions and thinking about the way in which uh, social action, caring for needs, goes together with preaching the gospel. This is a really key passage. Because Jesus understands that being forgiven for our sins is a higher priority than being healed from being paralyzed. Okay, don't miss that. Jesus knows, we looked at this two weeks ago, that sickness is a signpost to sin. Not that this man sinned in a particular way, but all the sickness in the world points to the reality of sin. And it's a pointer that this man needs to be forgiven. And so Jesus forgives his sin. That's the priority of forgiveness. Next, we see the problem of forgiveness. Jesus tells him, be encouraged, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. And right away, verse 3, behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man's blaspheming. You can't do that. I mean, we probably understand. So if I was to walk up to one of you and go, it's okay. Your sins are forgiven. You'd say, uh, who are you? How much more for them? Where could, if you were a Jew living in the first century, where did you go to get your sins forgiven? To the temple. What did you have to bring with you? A sacrifice. Who could offer that sacrifice for you? A priest. And then the priest perhaps could say to you, your sins are now forgiven because you've offered a sacrifice in the right way at the right place. Here's Jesus way up in Galilee, just this guy, he's not even a priest, they think, and he says, your sins are forgiven. You can't do that. Only God can do that. This is the problem of forgiveness. Only God can forgive sins. And so finally, Jesus offers the proof of forgiveness that, yeah, he can forgive sins because he's not just an ordinary man. Verses four to eight, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? There's a miracle right there. He knows what they're thinking. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Well, it's kind of a trick question, right? Okay, which is actually harder to do? Is it harder to heal someone or to forgive their sins? Well, it's actually harder to forgive their sins. It's easier to heal someone. But it's actually easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because if I say to one of you, like if, if I was one of these charlatan, you know, hoaxer guys, and I was to say to you, your sins are forgiven, no one can tell that it's happened or not. Okay, I've been in environments where people have said things to me like, the future is going to go really well for you. And you can't tell until the future didn't go well. Uh, that's a whole other story. But... Uh, you, 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 there's no way of verifying whether that actually happened or not. But if you look at a paralyzed guy and you say, get up and walk, you can tell pretty quickly whether you're the real deal or not. So Jesus, which is easier to say? So he's basically saying, I'm going to prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins by healing his body too. Proving he's not a fake. Verse six, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he stops and he looks at the paralytic. And, and once again with words, no ceremony, no tools or toys, just rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. Just, just, he just did. Because 
Jesus can do these things with his words. This is the proof that Jesus can forgive. Jesus tears down the signpost of sickness to show that he is dealing with the real thing of sin. Now let's not forget that Jesus does not just overlook sin. Jesus can offer forgiveness there in Capernaum because in a number of months, Jesus was going to author forgiveness on a cross outside of Calvary, Calvary, the cross of Calvary, outside of Jerusalem. That's how Jesus can forgive his sins because Jesus knows that very soon he's going to die in this man's place for his sins. Isn't that beautiful? Think of this man suffering for years, paralysis, and Jesus knows very soon, I'm going to suffer for your sins on the cross. And because Jesus knows that he's going to pay for this man's sins, that day he can say, your sins are forgiven. And as a proof of this, and as a little preview of the new creation, he heals him too. And what's interesting, in verse 8, once again, we get the reaction of the crowds. And this is kind of where the story ends. And it's very similar to the, when Jesus he, cast the demons out of the man. We see that the crowds don't get it. Verse 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. You see, they still think Jesus is just a man. A man. And they think, oh, God gave this man the authority to heal and forgive sins. They still didn't get who he was. The demons did. The people didn't. And that's why these three passages together are causing us, are written, are given to us to make us ask, do we get who Jesus is? We should marvel at the displays of his authority here, but the crowds marveled and they didn't get who he was. Do you get who Jesus is this morning? On this side of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, do you see Jesus as he calms the storm, casts out demons, forgives the man's sins, heals him, do you see him as the authoritative Jesus with all authority in heaven and on earth over nature, over the seen world, over the unseen world, and over your very sin? Do you see Jesus as the authoritative Son of God with all power? As you think about your answer to that question, remember the words of Jesus Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So I just want to encourage you, as you think about who is Jesus, the real answer is not you just saying this morning, oh, he's the Son of God. The real answer to that question, who is Jesus, is does your life reflect your belief that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you do his will, right? Right? If you believe Jesus is the authoritative Son of God, you will live under his authority. If you believe that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, you will go to him with your guilty conscience instead of running and hiding or trying to pay for your sins some other way. If you believe that Jesus has the authority over the unseen realm, then you will not freak out when you run into opposition with the powers of darkness you'll know that Jesus wins and you will run to Jesus for safety. If you know that Jesus has authority over the wind and the waves, then when your life gets into crisis, you will run to Jesus instead of trying to fix it on your own. 
When you know that Jesus has powerful words, you will live your life submitted to his words, actually obeying what he said. Our answer to the question, who is Jesus? Yeah, it starts with our words, but the answer is a lived out answer. This morning, we're going to see two people respond to the loving authority of Jesus in a very direct way. One of Jesus' most important commands is the command to be baptized. The end of the book of Matthew, he said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, make followers of me of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then goes on to tell us to teach those baptized people to observe all that he's commanded us. Baptism is the first, should be one of the first and most important ways that we publicly register our allegiance to the risen Christ. And this morning, there are two very young people who are going to come up and register their answer to the question, who is Jesus? Not just with their words, but with an act of obedience that is a continuation and in many ways the first step of a life of following Jesus. These two people are both young, Olivia Jurgens and Asher Hutchison. They come today of their own accord. I can tell you this, that this isn't mom or dad forcing them to do anything. This is these people hearing what they've heard, just like you have, and saying, I want to obey Jesus. I want to follow Jesus, and I want to be baptized. And I think this is a perfect conclusion to this sermon And I hope that their example stirs up in each one of you a desire to say, I'm going to follow Jesus, not just with my words, but with my life. Whatever's ahead of me this week, I'm going to put Jesus first. I'm going to obey his word. I'm going to go to him first because Jesus is the Lord. And I'm going to live under the banner of his loving authority. So I'm going to pray that I'm going to head over to the tank and we're going to celebrate with these two people together. Father, thank you for showing us the authority of your son over nature, over demons, and over sin. Jesus, we thank you that we can go to you with our guilty consciences and receive forgiveness. I thank you that we can go to you with our fears and with all our our encounters with, with the dark powers in this world that haunt us and tempt us, and we can go to you and be safe. And I thank you that, Jesus, we can go to you in crisis and know that we are safe with you in the crisis, that you're with us, and you have the power to bring calm at any point. Jesus, help us to live out this answer to you, our answer of, yes, we believe you're the Son of God, not just with our words, but with our life. And I thank you for the example of these two young people today. And may what we see here encourage and inspire each one of us to say yes to you this day and all days. Thank you, O Lord. Amen.